Welcome to the Next Gen Cast. This is a podcast from Next Generation GP, a national leadership programme. Next Gen was set up to energise, engage and empower GPs right at the start of their careers to consider leadership roles by sharing stories of people who've done this before. And that's exactly what we're hoping to do through this podcast. My name's Nish, I'm a GP registrar in Cambridge and co-founder of Next Gen GP. Over the coming episodes, we're going to be interviewing leaders from different parts of the NHS and even some from outside of healthcare. Our aim is to really get behind the titles, to the heart of the stories that we have so much to learn from as we set out on our own leadership journeys. Now, before we start, I think most of our listeners will be from the NHS and I just want to take a moment to say thank you for everything that you're doing at the moment. So I'm really excited today to be speaking to Baroness Dido Harding. She might have become familiar to you over recent weeks because Dido has taken on perhaps the most crucial challenge of her career in heading up the NHS Test and Trace programme for coronavirus. Now at the time of this recording at the end of May, this has only just been launched. Or maybe she's better known to you as the Chair of NHS Improvement, which she joined in 2017. And that was actually her first role in the NHS. Before that, she was Chief Exec at TalkTalk, Talk, and during that time, TalkTalk Talk was actually hit by a hacking scandal which saw millions of customers' personal details and bank details accessed by cyber attackers, and she's going to go on to talk about that briefly in our conversation. Before that, she had a variety of senior roles across the business sector, including Tesco, Sainsbury's, Woolworths and Thomas Cook, to name a few. She took the title Baroness Harding of Winscombe when made a life peer in 2014. And she's married to politician John Penrose and they've got two children. And in what probably very little spare time she has, Dido's actually a jockey and racehorse owner. So I was really excited when Dido agreed to come on the podcast. And of course, she couldn't talk in too much detail about the coronavirus role, but has loads of experience to share from outside of healthcare, which I think we can all learn from. I hope you enjoy the conversation. So Baroness Harding, it's honestly a privilege to speak to you today. Thank you for making the time for this. I know you initially agreed to speak a few weeks ago before the announcement of your new role. I never expected you to honour the agreement, but you did. So thank you and for everything that you're doing for the country at the moment. Not at all. Um, I find it very hard to say no. It's definitely one of my failings in life. And having made the commitment, I, I care passionately about how we, you know, bring great people up and through in the NHS and so having said I would do this I find myself squeezing it in on a crazy Saturday. (laughs) Thank you so much. I mean there is so much I want to ask you about and actually I hope we don't spend the whole conversation talking about coronavirus because there is so much more that I know that you have to share on leadership but if you don't mind let's just start there so I mean how are you and how are you finding leading this incredible test and trace program? So many emotions. It is the most extraordinary privilege um, and honour to be trying to to do this. Um, I, I I don't think I have ever worked with such an extraordinary group of people uh, trying to do something that feels so important. No, um, a shiver ran down my spine on Wednesday night when I did the press conference when I, I got to say thank you to the nation. What an amazing thing. So a large part of me is just sort of filled with pride and trying my best to, to, to make this work, to make it possible for us all to get back to a more normal way of life. Um, 
but it's also terrifying, um, enormous. Um, we have 40,000 people, or more than 40,000 people, I think, now working um, either directly for or with NHS Test and Trace. And, and as an organisation and a service, it didn't exist two months ago. So as someone said to me on a text message this morning, we're trying to create a sort of FTSE 100 company in, in a few weeks. So it's, it's also very daunting. But as I say, my primary emotion is one of pride um, and, and, and the sense of privilege to be able to step up and serve at the moment. Thank you for what you're doing. I mean, I can't imagine what it must be like. Are you getting any rest? <laughs> no, I'm not very good at getting rest. Um, today is meant to be a day when I'm not working. So you can see how well I'm role modelling that. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I actually don't count this as work. It's a, it's a break from NHS Test and Trace for a little bit. Um, oh, good. <laughs> and my family and my pets and my friends are doing a really good job at trying to keep me grounded, um, for which I'm very grateful. So let's we'll park coronavirus just for a moment, although I imagine it will crop up later in the conversation. Um, I want to talk to you a bit about your career leading up to this point. So you've had a phenomenally varied and very successful career. And every time I've heard you speak, I have been particularly struck by this kind of steely determination that you have. And I wondered whether you could just talk a bit about where that was nurtured or who it was nurtured by. So where did that come from, that confidence? Is it nature or nurture debate that, uh, who knows? Um, I guess people would have said of me when I was at school that I was competitive in a game of tiddlywinks. So I definitely have this core drive in me um, that um, I don't really know where it came from. But the, the person who most shaped my life, I think, is my grandfather. And actually, I'm sitting in my dining room at home looking up at a portrait of him. Um, and he was uh, a soldier. Um, he was 18 when the First World War broke out. And at the time, he was a clerk in the post office in London. He was the son of a tenant farmer in Somerset, and they hadn't been able to afford for him to stay at school. So at 16, he'd left school and come to London. And when the war broke out, he signed up as a territorial soldier in the Finsbury Rifles. And to cut a very long story short, he finished his military career as the head of the British Army. And no one has ever gone from being a territorial, a part-time reservist in the army to being the head of the, the armed forces. So he had a real sort of rags to riches um, life. And I was lucky enough to be the adored granddaughter. And when I was in my teens, he was in his 80s. And sadly, my, my grandmother died and I was his plus one. I used to go to stuff with him and I didn't realise quite how much he had shaped the way I view the world until I was in my 30s. And a friend of mine, and he died you know, 10, 12 years earlier. And a friend of mine sent me a copy of a speech that he'd given at a passing out parade at Sandhurst in the 50s when he was the head of the British Army. And my husband found me in our study reading the speech with just tears sort of streaming down my face. And John said, well, what's wrong? And, and I said, I hadn't realised that the things that I just hold to be a priori true, just cardinal acts of faith in human nature, are the things that he taught me because they were in that speech. But he didn't tell me that when I was 14 or 18. He sort of taught me it through what he did and how he treated people. Um, and so 
I definitely think that he's the person who's most shaped me. He, he One thing, and I think I've said this to you before, he used to say when I was young, was that you can only be brave if you're afraid. That, that anybody, everybody is human and is afraid. Um, the bravery comes when you choose to do something positive and to face into that fear. And, you know, I was 16 and scared about what A-levels to do or worrying about sort of imposter syndrome of going to, to Oxford. And, and he used to say to me, it's okay. It's okay to be afraid. It's, you know, are you going to run away from it or are you going to face into it? And in all the really difficult moments in my life, and I definitely count the last few weeks, I, I channel that instinct that he ingrained in me as a teenager, that you know, my job as a leader is to face into the fear and, and move forward rather than run away. I love that. You can only be brave unless you're afraid. I feel like I need to write it next to my mirror at the moment and have a look <laughs> at it every day, particularly right now. I mean, that choice between, you know, letting your fear overwhelm you or challenging it to actually do something is perhaps um, one that I think people will have been experiencing at the moment. Maybe we can talk a little bit more about courage, actually, if that's okay. So you had executive roles at Thomas Cook, at Woolworths, Tesco, Sainsbury's and Talk Talk before coming to the NHS. Looking back at that time, can you reflect on a time where maybe you really had to use that advice more than ever? So a time when you were really afraid and you had to be brave. Yeah, of course. Um, so the, the obvious one place to go is when I was running TalkTalk Talk and TalkTalk Talk, um, had the cyber attack, which was very public. Uh, and a couple of levels uh, where I had to sort of channel the fear. The most difficult decision that I had to take um, when I was running TalkTalk Talk wasn't whether or not to warn our customers that their data had been um, accessed. Actually, it was easy to see that was the right thing to do um, uh, to try and protect our customers. The most difficult decision was to decide when it was safe enough to open up our online services again and to let people come back and use them. Um, because once you've declared something very dangerous, uh, it, it's, it's much more difficult to make that risk judgment on whether it's safe enough. Um, and at the time, I was getting, um, and this is now all in the public domain, um, the, 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 the group of people who had attacked Talk Talk, um, one of them was trying to blackmail me and you know, blackmail the company. And I was getting these um, anonymous emails. And we didn't know at the time who it was or what was really going on. And I remember calling one of the um, security services team that was advising us um, late at night and saying, um, should I be worried about my family? Should I be worried that this isn't just about the company and this is personal or that it could become personal and physical? And this very experienced um, security expert didn't say, as I thought that he would, ha, 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 don't be silly, that only happens in spooks. He paused and said, I don't know. Give me half an hour to go and find out a bit more information and I'll come back and tell you. And for that half hour period, I was as scared as I've ever been in my life. Uh, and you know, that was a truly terrifying moment. Um, but I needed to know the answer to the question. And I needed to work out what I would do. Now, as it happened, he came back half an hour later and said, no, um, the considered view is that this isn't going to be personal and physical, but we'd like you to put in the following security arrangements. Uh, 
and you know the temptation at that point to sort of pick up my family and run away was very great as I talk it now it's so obvious it wouldn't have been the right thing to do um, but also probably more importantly my people in Talk Talk needed to see that I wasn't afraid I don't think I've ever been more conscious, actually, than those few weeks at Talk Talk. That you know, most of us, ninety percent of all communication is non-verbal. So how you look when you walk in the office, when deep down you're feeling terrified, really matters. And so you know, that next morning when I went back into work with a close protection person with me, which I never thought I'd have. Now I've never been more conscious about the need to smile to find some humour and joy in the day and to calm my people down um, than in that moment. And I think, you know, for me, that was me really listening to my grandfather that, yeah, I was really afraid. Um, and I was afraid at a personal level that wasn't something I had been prepared for as a corporate chief exec, but my people needed to see that I'd got it and I was in control and, and I was okay. Um, and so long as they thought I was really okay, do you know I was? Um, and so I found I, the way I find the courage to do that is that if other people are depending on me, I find it much easier to cope with what needs to be done. Because actually, in the end, providing that leadership is, is a service. And if you can do your bit, then you're freeing up lots of other people to do theirs. Mm. And I suppose that has some parallels to now, doesn't it? That, that need to show courage in the face of uncertainty, maybe when you're at personal risk as well. When you look back at that time, what did you learn about leading through a crisis, apart from, apart from the need to focus on your nonverbal communication? I think people listening to this, this perhaps coronavirus is the first crisis that they've had to lead through. What advice would you give to them? I think the thing that I learned at Talk Talk, and I hope you see me trying to do now, is the importance of being um, authentic and being who you are and being as honest and as transparent as you possibly can be. I, I got a lot of flack from the media uh, during my time at Talk Talk for, quote, being naive and, and saying I don't know on the Today programme to a couple of, of uh, questions. But actually, what that did for me personally and for Talk Talk as a business is that we started to rebuild trust with our customers because they saw that we were being honest. Uh, and and I, I found that that's been a life-changing lesson for me, and actually it was for Talk Talk as, as, as well, that by being open and honest, Talk Talk's brand reputation actually improved through the cyber attack. And I feel the same is true for all of us as leaders at the moment, that um, you know, the more that people can see that you are standing in your own shoes, that you're not pretending to be someone that you, you're not, the more they can see you're trying your utmost to be transparent and clear about how you see the world and what you're doing about it, um, the more they're likely to trust you. And, and actually, when things are very ambiguous and lots of people are scared, which is undoubtedly the world we're in at the moment, building trust is probably the most important thing that you can do as a leader. And, and you do that by, but by being okay with yourself um, by finding enough time, and maybe this call is fantastic therapy for me because it's reminding me that to do this, but to create enough time to be whole in yourself and then be open and be who you are. And I think we're seeing that actually around the world, that you know, a number of leaders, and it's, it may be, I hate the, I hate the stereotype 
um, but uh, because I think it's wrong. But nonetheless, it is a very traditionally female stereotype to be more like this. And I think the men and the women who are finding their their own honest voice are the ones that we're all listening to more readily at the moment. I think that's very true. And I love what you said there about you can be uncertain and you can admit the uncertainty, but it doesn't mean that you have to show show your fear. You can still be courageous at the same time. And those two things can be true together. That's so important. Um, I'll send you my therapy fee at the end of this, I think. <laughs> that would be brilliant. <laughs> So can we talk a little bit about the, the media management during that time when you were at Talk Talk? So you went from being in the business pages to being on the front page, probably, I don't know, but quite quickly. How did that, how did that feel and how, what did you learn from that? Well, I guess because I was a female high profile business leader before the attack, I'd had a fair amount of it before. And I'm married to a politician. So I, I lived as a family through the expenses scandal. Um, I've had my mortgage payments on the front page of the local paper. Um, so, by the way, not because John had done anything wrong, but because every local paper published every MP's expenses. Um, so I've lived in the public eye for quite a long time. And it's almost hard to remember what it's like not to, to be that. Uh, I think the approach that I take is that it's a privilege to do these jobs. And what comes with it is perfectly legitimate public scrutiny and so there's no point getting too upset about it because that's a democracy I'd rather live in a democracy um, and the media plays an important role I also try to keep a rule of doing of, you know you'll never find any pictures of in the public domain of John and I with our children it, our children didn't sign up for this life um, whereas he and I did um, and so I don't, I try to keep a barrier and a separation between you know, the family life and, and work. And, and I think that's important to, to give them a chance to grow up, to be as normal as possible. But it goes with the territory and, and you have to have a very thick skin and not get too hurt. And the way I do that is to try and understand why people might be throwing stones at, at you in the media. And for a lot of the time, you know, journalists need to do their job too, which is they need to sell, uh, you know, sell their stories and they need to you know, get people listening to or watching or reading their content. Uh, and so inevitably that means sometimes things get sensationalised and there's no point getting stressed about it. That's their business model. doesn't make them wicked and evil people. And so uh, my whole approach to, to life is to try to, to assume that pretty much everybody comes to work trying to do a good job and pretty much everyone has got a reason a rationale for the way that they're behaving now i know that that's a simplification and that not a hundred percent of humanity is like that but i've found that if you approach life by starting with that assumption and wait for people to prove you wrong actually more often than not human beings reward your trust in them and if you can understand why that they are attacking you, um, you find a crumb of empathy for what they're doing, and that makes you respond in a way that enables you to change their minds more effectively. You, you very rarely change people's minds by having a huge punch-up with them. You change their minds by understanding their frame of reference and influencing them from that understanding. And that's the approach I try to take with all the sort of media scrutiny as well. Thank you. I mean, that's such a kind and helpful way to look at it and one I'll definitely try to remember. 
If we carry on with that theme of bravery and courage, and you touched on this a little bit, you were a CEO at a time when there were hardly any women in roles like that, I think. And in my head, I picture you in boardrooms with kind of swaggering men who were relentlessly sure of themselves. Maybe I'm wrong, but was it like that? And, and, and if so, how did you cope? Gosh, I, I guess the awful truth is I've spent a very large part of my working life being the only woman in the room. And coming into the NHS, one of the delights for me, I know that we give ourselves rightly a hard time that the diversity of leadership in the NHS isn't anywhere near good enough. My goodness, it's a lot better than corporate Britain is. No, there are many more senior female leaders and there are, even though there's still far too small a number, more BME senior leaders in the NHS than there is in, in, the, in, in corporate Britain. Um, so. Yeah, I have to cast my mind back to how that felt. Um, being the, there's a great book that someone gave me called a, "Being a Peacock in a World of Penguins," and how the peacock, you know, is misunderstood by the penguin. And and it and I had an epiphany on this when I was I was working at Tesco, and and I was very odd as far as the Tesco leadership were concerned. It wasn't just that I was a woman. It was, I was an ex-management consultant with a Oxford and Harvard degree and full of people who had started um, on the shop floor and had very successfully built their careers up to running large chunks of Tesco. So I was alien to them on all of those schools. I was also trying to, I was still being a sort of fairly serious amateur steeplechase jockey. And they used to look at me very weirdly because I'd go to the gym first and come into a board meeting at eight o'clock eating my breakfast looking, I have to confess, probably not as quaffed as I should have done. <laughs> uh, and so I was, I was alien on so many dimensions. And the epiphany I had um, through a brilliant coach at, that Tesco provided and helped me with was that I scared the living daylights out of them. And I was so busy feeling scared myself and feeling the need to prove that I was worthy in the room and to make a, a, you know, a smart comment in every discussion and to make a difference that actually I didn't realise that my difference scared them as much as they scared me. And so the thing that changed for me was, you know, going back, this is a specific, I was describing earlier, once I understood that that was how a lot of the the men I was working with in the room viewed me um, that it wasn't that they didn't think I was good enough. They were just terrified I was going to say something they hadn't thought of and make them look stupid. And once I realized that I and started to learn how to put myself in their shoes, I was so much more effective at getting stuff done and at building relationships with people who were different from me. And it's really hard to do. You know, we all make assumptions about people um, 30 seconds after meeting them and and doesn't matter you know, what um, background we have we do that and it's learning and reminding yourself to catch that assumption as you make it and not be driven by it and goodness knows we're all human and we all get that wrong a lot of the time but I think as I've got older and maybe a little bit wiser I've learned how to catch myself uh, a bit more and put myself in other people's shoes and then actually the power of the diversity in the room is, is amazing. I love that thank you so much I love that thought that maybe the thing that's making you really insecure is actually perhaps part of your strength part of your uniqueness and um, so you talked there you mentioned coaching briefly 
Have you had coaching throughout your career? The first coach I, I had is a lady called Maggie. I've worked on and off with Maggie now for 16, 17 years. Now, I haven't worked with her all the time in that 17-year period at all. Actually, I've worked with some other coaches. I think some, one of the things about coaching is that you have to sort of have bite-sized amounts of it to then digest and embed and you know, find. And sometimes you need different styles and different perspectives. But I've certainly maintained my, my you know, close relationship with Maggie as someone I fall back on when I know I really need advice um, for a long time now. And I would really advise anybody who is wanting to, you know, leadership is not some magic thing that you're either good at or bad at. It's something that you can practice and hone and improve just like any other skill. It was a revelation to me when I learned only in recent years that people of your seniority still had coaching and they still had help it honestly I don't think most people realize that and it's really humbling to know that you don't don't necessarily have it all sorted all of the time and everybody needs help everyone needs a release you should look at the sporting analogy you know the very best the world-class sportsmen and women have coaches and Mm. no so why shouldn't all of us in all of our professions and careers look to get that coaching and advice if we aspire to be the very best thank you that's a helpful analogy actually Um, So moving on from your time before the NHS, you decided to move um, to the NHS in 2017. So what was your drive behind that? How did you know, right, my time in the business world is up? How did you know that? Or what what was it about the NHS that, you know, you thought you could, you'd come and make a difference to us? Let me tell you my journey. So I spent seven and a half years at Talk Talk, and one of the things I learned in business, it, it, actually Justin King, the then chief executive of Sainsbury's, taught me this. Justin used to talk about the two-term presidency rule, that the founding fathers of the US had got it right, that you shouldn't do really big executive leadership jobs for more than eight years, because after that period of time, you start believing your own press, and that everyone around you who works for you, the board who oversee you, the advisors you use, that you, you've appointed all of them. And after eight years, it's really hard to renew and refresh. Now, there are amazing leaders, many in the NHS actually, who've been able to reinvent themselves. But on average, most of us shouldn't do big, sink the same executive job for more than eight years. So I was, and I went into Talk Talk as the chief exec, believing in that rule. So I was never going to stay more than eight years at Talk Talk. Um, and what happened to me in this from, from year six to year eight was to, starting to think about, goodness, I love this. I don't want to leave it. Um, what am I going to do next? What am I going to do with the rest of my life? And, and I started to realize that the bits of the job I most enjoyed weren't actually about making money for TalkTalk shareholders, much though I loved my chairman, the main shareholder, and knew that that was my job. But I, the bits that I most enjoyed were when I thought I was doing something that was genuinely right for the country. So I'd spent, I spent a lot of time lobbying for stronger regulation of BT. I spent a lot of time working on child internet safety um, with the then Prime Minister, David Cameron. And I started to realise that was the stuff that was giving me joy at work. And that if I was going to you know, do something after Talk Talk, it needed to be more in the realm of public service than in making money. Um, and I was incredibly fortunate that I could make that choice. I didn't need to worry about the money. I could work out what really gave me joy. And so I went on a quest to try and work out how I could use my skills to, you know, best effect in public service. So I actually, because I'm quite analytical by background, there's a book that's published that has all of the government bodies of any size. um, And I went through it and it talks you through what every organisation does, how large they are, what powers they have, 
Um, and I started sort of doing informational interviews with people I knew in the public sector to say, where could I be useful? And literally everyone from the business world I spoke to told me not to go near the NHS. They, all the business people said to me, Dido, people like you from business have tried to make a difference in the NHS and it's gobbled them all up and they failed. It won't work, don't touch it. But a few people who um, from health told me to go out and meet some folks. So I went and spent uh, an afternoon with Andrew Morris when he was still running Frimley Park. And I went out to South End and met Claire Panica. And then someone else introduced me to one Jim Mackey, who was then Chief Executive NHS Improvement. And what I found in those three individuals is that they are all just brilliant operational leaders. You know, walking around Frimley with Andrew as he was joking with the porters and planning his next trip to Le Mans with the consultants and picking up rubbish as he went around the corner. He was actually very similar to the very best operational leaders I've met in, in business, but they were all working on something that was just so much more important. And so I just found that the NHS got under my skin. And so, have, so the more people I met working in, in the NHS, um, the more I realised that it had this extraordinary combination of a purpose that I could completely relate to um, and the operational complexity and the people leadership that actually I know a bit about from leading large retailers and service providers. So I sort of came to this view that maybe it was a place where I could make a difference and that I would get real joy. And, you know, I wish I'd found it earlier. I have absolutely loved the last two and a half years that I've spent um, in NHS improvement. And I think that you could spend your whole life trying to understand how the NHS works and how to make a, a difference. And I very much hope I will get to spend a few more years yet doing it. I'm very glad you didn't listen to the people who tried to put you off. Um, <laughs> although I'm wondering whether we only have five more years of you now that you've said the eight-year rule. What well, no, I'm not doing an executive <laughs> job at the moment, don't worry. Okay. And, and that's not the, the beauty about the NHS, as I've learned, is it isn't one organisation. I have a whole lifetime in the NHS in a variety of different roles. I, I've seen that now. Great. Um, so thinking about when you first joined, if you can cast your mind back to those early months, what surprised you the most? Um, gosh. Well, I think the first thing is, like most members of the public, I had no idea how complex the organisation is. And that, and there I've said it, I, I would have come in thinking the NHS was an organisation. And rather than now properly understanding it's a system, that it's 10% of the UK economy, um, that it's made up of a huge number of different interconnected organisations and bodies, um, and that it is so much more complex than people from the outside realise. So I think that's the first obvious thing. I think the other thing that surprised me in, in, in not such a good way is that uh, from the outside, I thought that, and I know I think this is true, everyone goes into health and social care because they care. There's a huge drive to care for people that, 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 that brings any of us into the health and social care sector. And I have been, and I continue actually to be somewhat surprised and, and saddened by the fact that the leadership culture doesn't reflect that caring in anything like the measure that I think it should. And that was quite a surprise to discover a lot of the things that I think the modern world of management over, has changed a lot over the last 20, 30 years. How you lead and manage people is a well-documented social science and I think a lot of that has passed huge tranches of the NHS by. 
and and that I still find quite bemusing and that I think there's a huge opportunity to unleash the talent in our workforce if we shift to a more modern, inclusive, collaborative, improvement-focused culture. And I would have expected that from the outside to be the core of what NHS leadership and management was. And yet there are pockets of absolute brilliance in the NHS in this regard, but it's not the norm. And I rather thought it might be. How, how do you think we can change that? Do you think we can? Are you optimistic? I, I absolutely think we can. And, you know, that's a lot of the work that I've done in the last year and a half with a huge group of people from across the service on the people plan. Um, I keep saying, you know, a lot of what you do, I could no more, you know, train now to become a, a GP than jump the moon. Um, but actually, all of us can learn how to be better leaders and managers. It's actually not rocket science. Um, but we've got to care enough to make it happen. And uh, I think that we've made a lot of progress in the appointment of Prana Isar as the first chief people officer of the NHS. I mean, isn't that shocking that that's the first one? Um, but my goodness, we need to support her and her people team. And we need to hold the mirror up to everyone in the NHS to say, you know, are you, are you thinking about what good leadership looks like in your role? Are you honing it and developing it? Are, have, you, have we defined what it is? Are we holding people to account for the way they behave as well as what they do? Are we training and developing people along the way? And, and up and coming young GPs like, like all of your group are the future. You're the ones who will shift the, the dynamic. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to do this, this podcast, because we'll only shift it through a combination of the technical terms, hard power and soft power. So people like me sitting sort of in a position at, in, higher up in the hierarchy have hard, hard power and we can change things like the way the CQC inspects people to assess their leadership culture, not just their governance. But hard power on its own won't change this. In a system of millions of people, soft power is, is every bit as important, if not more. And so creating a movement of people who want to drive change. So we've got to do both. And, you know, I'm, maybe I'm a stupid optimist. I probably wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now if I wasn't. But I, I really do believe in the, the power of the, the caring motivation that has driven everyone into health and social care in the first place. So I think it's eminently doable. Thank you. And I, I got a bit of a lump in my throat then when you were talking because you just articulated so well what this is all about. And it's so nice to speak to someone so senior who just gets it. So thank you so much for that, Dido. Um, you mentioned some fantastic people there, Jim Mackey, Claire Panica. When, when you think about leaders and the good leaders that you've seen now, because I imagine you've been all over the system, what do they look like? I imagine they don't come in just one flavour, but are there some common traits that you think you know, that is a good leader? I think the good thing is they really don't look the same. Um, that's important. Um, they all look very different. But common traits, I think that they are, they are all kind. In the end, the, the, the very best healthcare leaders are kind. And, and even when they have to do really difficult things and deliver very difficult messages, they do it kindly. I think the very best leaders across the service are also very humble. I think that, that there's a thing about healthcare leadership that it is almost by definition servant leadership because the important work is done at the point of care with patients. And our job in management and leadership roles is to free people up to make the right decision and give the right care to patients. 
And that's where, we, unlike the world I've come from, actually, it's very different in retailing, where a lot of the, the important decisions are taken in the centre. Same in telecoms, a lot of the important decisions are taken in the core of the network are really important decisions that are taken with patients by our most highly trained and most valued colleagues, our clinicians. And so I think that the leaders that really understand that, that it's there, that they're not the ones who are important. It's our frontline clinical, and I hate using the frontline term really, the point of care clinical staff are the most important. And we need to you know, be the conductors of the orchestra rather than the soloists. And so I, I think there's, that's a very common trait with the most successful and impactful modern leaders in the NHS. So interesting. You say that kindness and humility, which some people might say, especially in the business world, are soft skills, but they're not, are they? I mean, they're the, the hardest skills in a way to lead with. We had a, a next gen webinar with um, Michael West last week, and he said, you know, the compassionate leadership is not the easy stuff. That's the hardest way to be as a leader. Totally agree with Michael. I, I think... It, this is not an excuse for ducking the difficult decisions. And I think you know, my reputation goes ahead of me. I don't duck the dis- difficult decisions. But one of the things I try to remember is that the most difficult message you have to deliver it needs to be delivered in the kindest way. So the harder the message, the kinder you have to be when you deliver it. That doesn't mean you avoid it, but it means you need to get, deliver it kindly. And I'm learning from clinical colleagues, that's actually no different from delivering really tough clinical messages. It's even more important that you do it kindly so that, that, that you respect the individual and you help them hear the message. Hmm. Maybe a bit like breaking bad news in a consultation. It's got to be, yes. it's the hardest thing you're doing, but it's, you have to be at your best in terms of your kindness and your, your humility and your compassion. I think it's exactly the same. And, you know, when you're leading and managing large numbers of people, it is your duty to make the difficult decisions and to deliver the difficult messages. But you need to do it well and you do it well by being kind and, and compassionate. Um, but, you know, the, there's a business phrase of tough love. You, you know, actually often ducking the decision is, that is not being kind to the, to the individual. Hmm. So speaking of difficult decisions, um, I want to just change tack a little bit as we move into the end of the podcast and talk about your family, if that's okay. Yeah, um, sure. It's not, I don't think it's a complete change of subject, actually, because you strike me as someone who brings your whole self to everything that you do. And your two daughters that you mentioned and your husband are an integral part of that self. Um, I'd love just to hear a bit about how you've managed to, to bring up your two girls alongside doing such big roles. I mean, they are what, 14 and 15 now, so they were probably quite young when you were you're doing your big exec roles in the business world. How did you manage that? Very badly, I expect. Um, I, think that, I think like every working parent, I worry lots that I'm getting the balance wrong. And my two best friends, one gave up work as soon as she had her first child and the other thought she was going to be a career woman and carried on part time and now has her own business. But the three of us have all had very different career paths. And yet all three of us are constantly agonizing with each other about whether or not we're getting the balance right. And I think that being a particularly being a mum, it seems that some of my, my father friends agonise too, but not all. Whereas every girlfriend I have who's a mum spends their time, a lot of time agonising about whether you're getting that balance right. And I think that just seems to go with being a mum. So how am I balancing it? Well, partly by trying to acknowledge that it's okay to feel angst-ridden about it. So I had a day last week where 
Um, Because the last few weeks, I haven't really seen my family at all. And my husband's been amazing. And he is absolutely a linchpin. We're, you know, we're very lucky in the sense that both of us are able to do the thing we love work-wise, but also work together as parents. And it, you know, I would say that I couldn't do what I do if I had a husband who wasn't willing to play an equal part in, in parenting. Because sometimes John's doing something that if there's a problem at home, I have to cover for. And sometimes it's the other way around. Um, often, as a politician, in his case, often he's the guest speaker at an event. So if we've got a diary clash, he usually has the joker. Um, whereas over the last three weeks, I've held the joker. And uh, uh, earlier on this week, he, um, he was busy and so was I. And so our two teenage girls had a whole day having to fend for themselves. And I felt so guilty at the end of the day. And it was really silly. And it was getting me down. And and I made some space the next day to spend two or three hours with them in the evening. And it made the world of difference to the quality of, quality of my work. So I wrestle with it. I mean, I tell you the anecdote because I'm still wrestling with it. And I think what I observe with grandparents is that you never stop wrestling with it, that you're always a mum. No, um, my dad on his deathbed literally called me having been told by the doctor that he only had a few hours to live and he was completely compasmentous and he he called me and the first thing he said to me is darling please don't be gloomy this happens to everyone and I burst into tears and told him I hadn't listened to anything he'd ever said and why would I change now but actually what he was doing was trying to be a father to me even in those last few hours and look after me and I think that sort of extraordinary instinct that you have as a parent is always going to be with you. And so I juggle it by trying to acknowledge that that's the case and to give into it every now and again. Um, Because actually it is, as you say, I bring my whole self to work. And I think that those of us who are trying to juggle sort of two career households, we create an environment, if we're honest about how we feel about parenting, that allows everyone else to be honest about how they're feeling and to find the right balance for them. There isn't one way of doing this. Everyone's got their own version. Um, But if you legitimise what you're doing as a leader, you free everyone else up. And I really firmly believe we all do our best work if we're being allowed to be who we are. Thank you for being so, so honest about that. It's it's not common you hear people at your level talking so openly about mum guilt, which is the worst. And I'm a new mum and I'm only just about learning how awful it is. But, you know, it's actually kind of reassuring to know that it doesn't go away because it means that when I'm feeling it, it's... I can't be getting it wrong all of the time. So it's probably just, <laughs> I just have to get used to what that's like to live with probably more than anything else. So thank you. So just the last three questions, Dida. I know that you're so pressed for time, so I need to let you go. So the first is, can you recommend a book on, on leadership um, that you'd recommend people to read? Team of Teams by General Stan McChrystal. You're the second person that said that on this podcast, so people better read it. The second one is a, a leader that you particularly admire. I am in awe of Jacinta Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister. Me too. That's a fantastic one. And finally, your top three short bits of advice for new leaders. Be who you are and trust that you've got there because you're great. That would be my main two pieces. And enjoy it. You've got there because you want to do it and give yourself permission to have fun. And then the people around you will too and they'll be great. Fantastic. But Dido, I could keep asking you questions, but I know that there are so many demands on your time ordinarily, let alone right now. 
I've loved speaking to you. Um, your honesty and your drive is hugely refreshing. So thank you for being the courageous leader that I think your granddad inspired you to be. And best of luck with everything ahead. Well, and thank you for the consultation. I'm feeling a lot better for it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't charge. Don't worry. <laughs> so thank you for taking the time to listen to our third episode with Baroness Dido Harding. It'd be really great to hear what you thought of it and maybe any suggestions for who else we should be speaking to. You can email us at nextgenerationgp at gmail.com or tweet us at nextgp. And if you want to keep in the loop about future events and leadership resources, you can join over 2,000 people who have subscribed to our monthly bulletin by going to bit.ly forward slash nggpbulletin. Hope you can join us for the next episode.